0: Hello, I'm Scotia Monkovic. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the arts and emergency management sector as they prepare, respond and recover from disaster. Today we're speaking with Alex Weiser. Alex is an artist and creative producer based in Midwest New South Wales. In 2013, he co-founded the Cementer Contemporary Arts Festival, and took up permanent residence in the township of Candos with his family. The festival was created in response to the closing of the cement works in the town, and is now embedded as a celebrated biennial event for the region. Along with Cementer, Alex is a co-founder of the Candos School of Cultural Adaptation where his practice has continued to focus on the challenges and opportunities of making art in a regional context as well as a deep investigation into socially engaged art and its ability to support cultural change. As we'll discuss in this conversation a large focus of Alex's work is within the regenerative farming movement and exploring how the arts can support the process of change in communities facing serious challenges their way of life, both socially and environmentally. We're really pleased to be partnering with Alex on a research framework that we also touch on in this conversation, and look forward to sharing more about that with you later in the year. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alex Weiser. Good morning, Alex, and welcome to our Creative Responders in Conversation.
1: Good morning, Scotia. How are you?
0: Good. Alex, you're based in um, the town of Candos in Midwestern New South Wales. Can you tell us a bit about Candos and what drew you to that town?
1: Um, so Candos is a, uh, it's a cement town. It's uh, three and a half hours out of Sydney. It, uh, basically it's a 20th century town. it's very rare actually. There's only been a couple, I think in, in New South Wales and, and not that many across Australia towns that actually started in the, in the 20th century. It was a company town. So it was actually founded to house the workers for the Cement Works, the Cando Cement Works. And in 2000, and I believe 11, the Cement Works closed. And uh, my partner and I, we did an artist residency there in 2012 um, with a, a friend of ours, Ann Finnegan, who's a, an academic and an arts writer. And she would bought a place and she was doing sort of informal artist residencies. And Georgie and I had come up and we did a, a residency there. And, yeah, the conversations around the closing of the cement works um, and what that would mean for the town. And um, uh, I think we were dreaming a little bit about, you know, what an ama- amazing place the cement works themselves were. And we came up with the idea of putting on a festival, which we did. And we, we basically came up uh, thinking temporarily to put on that first festival, the cement festival. And um, we never left.
0: <laughs> and here you are 10 years later
1: <laughs> yeah 10 years later we're still here <laughs> in,
0: in, invested in community there can you tell us a bit about the community of Kandos what there is something about the surrounding area or the kind of challenges that are faced by communities like Kandos mm-hmm. both in terms of natural disaster but also the broader impact of things like the closing of cement works etc what sort of sensibility does that give to a town like Candos?
1: yeah so uh, I, I think you know Candos is actually so there's a, there's a second small town called ralston which is seven kilometers down the road and they call them the twin towns and um they, you know their slogan is two towns one community and ralston is a 19th century town it's a farming community i think it was a you know it was where the road originally crossed the river and, and became a kind of a stop, you know, for the trains that came through you No, know, yeah, you know, sorry, the road trains. And uh so that that town has a it actually has quite a, a distinct and different feel to Kandos. Candos really has a much more of that working class feel to it, whereas Ralston is much more of that uh regional town. It's very beautiful. It's on a river, it's got the sandstone buildings and the leafy streets, but it also has what I recognize as being the more insular Attitude than Candos has. Candos it does have it, but it's a different feel. There is definitely, I think, a very different feel. So, and Candos was the more welcoming. I felt as well at the time, Um, and I think that with small towns like this, especially when things get hard they tend to, you know, hunker down and those more um, self-isolating sort of tendencies come out where there's more suspicion to, to foreigners or or people that are, you know, blow-ins and stuff like that, that, um, that you recognize. Whereas in Candos, I didn't get that. And it was actually quite surprising because the cement works had closed uh, and I knew they were doing rough. And I was actually really surprised in that first residency at how sort of welcoming they were, Definitely not, you know, it wasn't open arms and it wasn't kumbayas. Um, people were, they would definitely check you, but they were also very friendly and um, and not kind of um, self-defensive. And so that, that was, I think, one of the reasons why the festival was, you know, established itself successfully here. It was was that, you know, that wasn't a particularly sort of insular community. And two, I think as well, it was vulnerable to change. <laughs> Definitely within the leadership of the town, there was a recognition that the town needed something to pick up after the closing of the works. And the appearance of, a, of an art festival, as strange as that was, was seen by a number of those the leaders, especially, as a potential, you know, uh, not not a cure all, not a silver bullet, but something that might actually sort of help. And so we got support to establish a festival from you know shop owners, uh, community leaders, and those sorts of people
0: yeah, as a way of trying to respond to some of that social and economic decline that was occurring.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I mean they, they and then we, and we basically went in on that level, like we made no attempt to try to win them over to, you know, what we thought was great about art or why we loved it or whatever. We just went, yeah, this will be very good for your town. We'll be able to bring some money in and help to ameliorate, you know, the economic situation that seemed to be closing in around Candos and Ralston.
0: So as part of that process, you are a co-founder of the Candos School of Cultural Adaptation. that sort of evolved over time and you work through this organisation to try and exemplify areas of interest and specialisation around socially engaged arts and culture. Can you tell us what KSCA is and what your motivation is about forming and what you kind of understand by socially engaged practice?
1: So, um, yeah, so KCA is the Candle School of Cultural Adaptation. Um, it actually began, like, in that very first festival. It was a part of an artwork by uh, the artist Ian Millis, who is, uh, he's a, he was one of the, the founding members of conceptual art in Australia. So a man that's been working uh, in this field since the 70s. And in the 70s, he started to do this sort of, um, to do socially engaged work and basically ended up, you know, he... He can be a bit cagey about this, but he ended up sort of moving away from the arts and into, say, unionism and advocacy with farmers. He definitely, you know, he he claims that he didn't leave the art world, (laughs) that he was still (laughs) performing as an artist, but just not in the art world. And it was just a matter of circumstance. He happened to be living in Walarawang around the time of the first festival. And, and we were somebody turned us on to him and we, we got a hold. So he did this work called uh, Welcome to Candos, which was a fictional tourist poster. And the poster was basically all of these amazing uh, projects that he purported uh, had been achieved in, in Kando. So we had the largest solar farm in the Southern Hemisphere. The silo at the uh, cement works had been turned into a, um, a scuba diving academy. There was a, <laughs> uh, a fleet of free-to-use plywood bicycles. There were all sorts of these wonderful you know, amazing alternative projects that had, you know, in this alternative universe that he'd made uh, that had been achieved. And one of those projects was a free university with the Candle School of Cultural Adaptation, which is a very specific kind of understanding of art and culture as basically something that is, is evolutionary, that culture changes via evolution and that we adapt our culture to changing circumstances, not through design, but through an emergent process of of evolution. And the poster was a big hit. Um, we got reported to – somebody reported it to council that, that we were telling lies. <laughs> That's
0: quite <laughs> it, <outcome. laughs> it was a
1: really uh, – were very, very proud of that one. Um, and, then, uh, and then I think it was 2017, another artist, Gilbert Grace, came to me, and he wanted to um, do a work for for that festival – uh, attempting to realize one of the um, uh, fantasies on the, the on this poster. And basically, this sort of idea kind of collected a number of artists around, and we chose the school, and we formed a, a cooperative. So it it really emerged out of that process of bringing art out here. And then suddenly we had a whole, you know, like, a, like if Cemento was the beachhead, KSEA is the, you know, the army that, <laughs> that goes land. And so we started doing work, and predominantly what that's been is to engage with um, uh, farming communities that are attempting to transition to more uh, sustainable uh, farming methods. So natural sequence farming, for instance, has been a huge component of what we do. It was invented 40 minutes up the road from us. The very, very first artist I ever talked to as a member of KSEA was – the son of the man who invented it. Peter Andrews invented it. Stuart Andrews is the son who, who had just recently purchased a property outside of Candos and was working to regenerate that. And we've basically, over the four years, you know, engaged communities in Bingara, in the Cabrity Valley, um, and here around Candos uh, and up in Mudgee, basically uh, attempting to take art, you know, out of its white walled box and contribute it to the cultural change that these communities are attempting to achieve.
0: So, the regenerative farming or these approaches are a response to what's uh, happening across farming in Australia, a response to drought and soil degradation and other consequences that modern farming practices and climate change are kind of spearheading at the moment. Can you maybe unpack for us or explain a little how the arts have been functioning as this tool to open conversations around these issues and how you might see it as a way of looking at supporting? what is really a massive cultural change across the board for the sort of farming sector and how they are going to manage a sustainable future?
1: Um, Yeah, so the first thing to realise is that, you know, the cultural change is is actually predicated by, you know, material circumstances. That you know the ongoing droughts, the climate change, the soil degradation that's occurring, you know th- those are having very real economic and psychological impacts on these communities. And it's those drivers that will push a community to that point where it will make change. A little bit like like Candos, really. You know that cha- you know a community has to be it has to need change. I guess what's important to understand is that these communities. They change because the material conditions for that change become, you know, imperative. So it, these are communities that are suffering from drought, climate change, soil degradation. It's affecting them. The, the economics of what they do are, are starting to really suffer, as well as the, you know, all of the psychological and social impacts that occur. It, it's when a, a community, um, uh, uh, faces a situation like that, that it, it, it begins to accept the fact that it, that it must change. Um, and, and this is very similar, I think, to what happened in Candos when, you know, Candos was a little bit ripe for change because it needed something. It, you know, it's so long as all of its needs are met, it's going to be a lot more, uh, robust in its resistance to, uh, something new coming in. You know, and, and, I, and I think this is true with the communities we're dealing with, is that, you know, all of these farmers are looking at these new methods and the, these more sustainable methods of farming because the conventional methods are no longer working for them. They're not working economically and they're also then causing a lot of different stress. And it's when those...
0: It's like you were saying earlier, vulnerability enables a new perspective to be open and ready. Yeah.
1: And I think that's just a part of human nature. I, I know this that we, you know so long as I've got a full set of friends, I don't tend to make new friends you know I don't put myself out there to take the risk of meeting new people like I've got my mates and we all hang out together but when I find myself in a strange city and I don't have any friends and I I will take myself out to places where I might be uncomfortable and and go meet people that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten to know so I I think it's a a relatively universal thing.
0: Can you explain how maybe your arts engagement or your processes that you and the school are kind of looking at are functioning as a tool to support or or engage conversation or some uh, framing and communication of what this change is for the farming community?
1: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so I I guess for me, like, the the idea of of cultural adaptation and its relationship to art, so basically the way it's it's sort of been framed from very early on is that the, the role of art is to change culture, but it does so within this very sort of, you know, isolated arena uh, that's that sort of unto itself, so it changes culture, but it changes art culture. And uh, I think over the years, that's beca- you know begun to mean less and less in terms of change in the world. Which is, I think, why artists are sort of wandering out into the wilderness to see if you know what it means to attempt to affect the world more directly. And so, you know, the, the way that I look at it is that, well, actually, art has a you know a two hundred year history. Modern art has a two hundred year history of developing strategies for changing culture, you know, for challenging convention, for uh, shifting perception, for uh, creating conversation and dialogue. And so for us, it's been a a means of um, or a matter of, uh, you know, attempting to apply these strategies uh, in a very, very different context than the one that they were developed for and seeing how we could plug it in to these communities and their efforts to make change.
0: So when you say not developed for, you mean taking your kind of practice into a social environment rather than a, a gallery environment, for example. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. So the, the culture of a community is very different than the culture of an art gallery mm. uh, or or an arts community. Like an arts community is actually it, it's uh, structured to uh, engender change, you know, to engender novelty, to constantly turn over and churn out new ideas and new perspectives a a community, a farming community, especially, is actually, you know, they're structured to hold things in place. It's a far more conservative culture. And so bringing these two cultures together presents certain kinds of uh, challenges. And the other thing is, is that, you know, that that we realize very early on is that we don't really know what we're doing, which is, (laughs) which is for an artist, a very good thing. Like that's actually where artists are most, comfortable is not the right word, but we're most at home. You know, uh, trying to basically, you know, to be in a strange land and, and attempt to come to terms with that, not knowing, and to find ways through. So we, it was it, really our our entire development has been a process of learning. Well, yeah, how can art affect a community? You know, how how can it work in these these other circumstances? Not assuming that if we just bring. You know, the, because, you know, the, <laughs> all of the self-importance of art and just, you know, drop it on some, some unsuspecting community, we're going to be benefiting them, but actually asking the hard question, well, yeah, what good are you to, to a community like this? And, mm-hmm. and there have been some answers that have come out of the, the various projects we've instituted. And,
0: it's the process uh, of shifting your perspective from the purpose of the social development rather than the arts development art yeah. development becomes a process of engaging and pushing the social change yeah.
1: yeah whereas in the art world i think our intention is much more to create objects that that produce reflection and de- develop you know universal conceptual uh, you know takes or, or 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 present ways of understanding uh, far broader and more abstract ideas whereas when you're working in a community, everything's particular. So you're taking it and you're applying. You're actually applying, and and this is very anathema to a lot of artists. You're applying it very specifically, almost in an instrumental way. I won't say it's you know it's fully instrumental, but you're applying it to very very direct and immediate needs um, at the time. Mm. So a community, you know, might be uh, facing a, a challenge and. That community, you know, is basically an organic composition of the various people that happen to be, um, to happen to compose it. And the various personalities that happen to, to get together are attempting to work together, um, and those personalities might clash. Or there might be a long history or a, a developed culture that is, you know, that, that generates friction and conflict within that community. Art does have an ability to uh, produce reflection. So that you can, uh, you know, you can create a, a little bit of reflection so that people can maybe understand why things aren't working very well when they attempt to, to address, you know, a, a problem collectively. And, and oftentimes what we've, we've discovered is that it's not that direct. But usually often what art can do is it can produce a sort of an undirected Uh, or non-instrumental space for people to gather um, and create a social cohesion that isn't loaded by politics or agendas or very specific ends oriented, where where you're going to get a lot of friction and difference between the members. You actually create and get people working on something, an artistic project that doesn't, you know, threaten anybody directly. You know, Mm. it might address...
0: A safe safe place to unpack all the tensions that revolve around these.
1: Yes. Very real yeah.
0: environmental situations. So um, could you tell us a bit about the project in Little Hartley around the solar panel technology? I think that's a kind of interesting example of how you've sort of applied this uh, methodology or way of engaging, creating relationships and, and addressing some real key issues but also opening opportunities between the urban Rural notions of practice, etc. And that, can you explain a little of that project?
1: Yeah. So um, uh, basically, the, the, the Little Hartley um, excursion, or I don't—it's more than that because they've sort of become partners. That it was it was actually completely accidental to the project we were working on. We had a two-year project called "The Artist, the Farmer, the Scientist, and uh, Walk into a Bar." Dot, dot, dot. And that was mostly engaged with a community up in Bingara, but through various connections. Uh, we got an opportunity to do a farm tour on this uh, farm uh, in Little Hartley um, in the Blue Mountains, and this was a, a young couple who had bought a property in in the mountains and were converting, it, uh, attempting to convert it to a regenerative natural sequence farming methodologies. Um, they were using cattle to regenerate the land, and they had market gardens that they were selling into the city. And so, there's two younger farmers uh, who I think had gone into it with with, with uh, a great you know, a great deal of idealism and then, you know, and did the hard yards, you know, found out what farming was all about, which is a lot of hard work and a lot of heartbreak. And they were, and then basically, I think just as, as they had begun, the drought had hit and they had slogged through that drought you know, attempting to build dams. They built a key line dam. They were doing what they could with the water ways to try to, it, there was no water. And, and so it was very, very hard for them to continue to go on. And we happened to do a, a, a farm day at their place. We, we in, ended up getting a, a, an audience of about 40 people from the city came up and walked on the land with these farmers to display this, this project that they had developed with a scientist, a, a, a solar scientist and an artist. Around what they were doing, and what they were doing was creating these solar panels that would um, also, uh, you know, cast shade over uh, and 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 protect, you know, more delicate plant life that wasn't able to take the harsher sun uh, of midsummer. So one of the the lessons that came out of that, because. I wondered about it, going. What are we doing? Is this a form of tourism? Are we just, you know, bringing these curious city slickers up to gape at the at the farmers? <laughs> and because you know, like we've kind of been focusing on the farmers so much and trying to find ways to support them, um, this broader audience, there there hadn't been a whole lot of engagement for them, and so that was kind of one of my questions. And the farmer, you know, one of the farmers actually, you know, during the talk, she actually mentioned how how dispiriting the whole experience had been and how um, how it was very hard to hold on to the values and the reasoning that behind why they had done it, you know, as they sort of slogged in isolation uh, along trying to effect this change that they were t- attempting to effect, and how validating it was to have all of these people from the city come up. As anybody who lives in the regions knows, there's a tension between farmers and 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 the urban you know populace who basically you know the people in the city who the farmers look at with with great suspicion from a great distance and and think oh these city slickers they just get their produce off the, the grocery store uh, a shelf and they just assume it arrives there they have, and and then and then they tell us that we're the ones flogging the land and that we're and that we you know we need to and they have no no understanding Again, which to some degree is true you know that that actually people in the city have no idea of the material realities. Uh, difficulties of what it takes to actually run a farm and make a living out of it, because you have to do that if you're going to. It's <laughs> going to be sustainable. You have to, and farmers. That's what farmers are concerned with. And one of the things that I think was really validating was, well, no, all of these people came two and a half hours out of the city to come to this farm, you know, because they were concerned about their food security, because they were concerned about the land, and they wanted to learn and to become, you know, to get into contact. And in the same breath. I think, you know, it validates um, uh, for those farmers what they're doing, that there is actually a community that they are serving, even if they're just they are disconnected. And if there's one little moment, we're able to kind of connect, you know, the farmer in with with the community that they are serving and that contact, that breaking down of isolation, which you know, that animosity builds within that I- uh, isolation. People polarize when they're separated from one another.
0: Yeah, it's also that shared um, shared knowledge in, ensures capacity to have change too, isn't it? If we're not educating to the end user, then the uh, developer is going to be constantly struggling. So it's a pretty important communication loop that we can help foster.
1: Yeah, and and I think as well, like, it's one of the, the great frustrations of farmers is that lack of understanding that people in the city who, you know, have a lot of say in in how, in how their industry is regulated, um, that lack of, you know, is a real problem. People do need to know where their food comes from, and they do need to know what the costs of their food uh, are, and that if they want to make this change, that they actually have to be doing the work as well.
0: Mm. Mm. There's so many things, Alex, that come through your projects and your different uh, relationships that you build and I think what's really clear to me is about that relational base that you're working from. Um, we're working in partnership with you at the moment around a kind of framework or a research into how we might um, explain or conceptualise this working process or a methodology around how you would look at developing very relational rich processes or engagements that you have through your practice. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that and may, maybe frame it around the Riverlung project and how this became a bit of a focus in terms of developing that research framework or the methodology that we're trying to to um, unpack together?
1: Yeah. So uh, I guess, uh, and I know, Scotia, you've heard this before from me, but it is the one that's most exciting For me in this was there was a moment there where we came to realize, you know, the the original sort of impetus for this project was to be able to develop uh, a research framework that would allow us to measure the social impacts of what we were doing so that we could communicate that to government, we could communicate it to, you know, potential uh, collaborative partners, communities, et cetera, and we could use it In would be framed in a language that they would understand, that, you know, it would be data. It would be, um, which when I, when I first approached it, I, I, I was very kind of, I was a little bit skeptical. I wasn't very skeptical. I was a little skeptical of, I, I didn't know how I was going to feel about it. Um, you know, doing, I find surveys and, and data collection to be a relatively alienating uh, sort of process, uh, though I understand the necessity of it. And so there was just this moment as we were developing the, the framework where uh, we kind of came up with the idea that, you know, we might actually begin not with the end user, uh, with, you know, uh, creating a tool set that will allow us to communicate with with government and and, and various agencies and um, et cetera, et cetera, but we could create a tool set that artists could use to better perceive uh, the social realities in which they were working. And this was something that, that I actually, when, when the idea occurred, I, I was like, "Oh wow, that's so valuable because when you go into a community to do one of these uh, socially engaged uh, project, um, you, what you don't know is infinite. Uh, communities are, are incredibly amorphous, opaque beings that um you know they're composed of various different compartments and people there are there are different groups within it and you know when people say oh well what does the community think it's like well yeah, which bit of the community are you talking to you it's never a simple you know understanding and in the projects as you engage especially because you know we work with very slim resources and we we don't have heaps of time to, to go in and, and, and you know, do do all the preliminaries and and lay all the groundwork and learn all the things. We just have to go in and, and do the project. Often what happens is a whole lot of amazing, fascinating things arise that you will just, you'll just sort of notice, start to notice the dynamics of how this community is operating. But because you're on the run and you're on the fly and you're just trying to get through your own stuff, you can't really do anything with it. You just have to watch it go by and, Oftentimes because you're so focused on on what you're doing, you miss it and you, and you know, you forget it and then it's gone. So the idea of of creating a tool set that would actually allow us to stabilize our perception a little bit. So, and then to be able to adjust our, our project as we move is very exciting because that's how art works. Like an artist. In, it, in the conventional sense, a painter will go, you know, have an idea for a painting, will go to the canvas, will start trying to make that idea, and then the materiality, you know, of, of what they're doing will then begin to interfere with their idea, will begin to resist that idea, and they will have to change. They will have to change their project in dialogue with the subject material or medium in which they're working. And the same thing occurs in the socially engaged work where you, you basically go in with an idea of what you're going to do and how that's going to be a great thing for everybody. And then usually when you first <laughs> thing,
0: none of that's <laughs> true.
1: That was all your assumption. And, but now you have a place to start and now you can actually adapt. Now you can actually change, but you have to, you know what? What we miss is we miss is that framework that will allow us to stabilize our understanding a little bit and give us a, a a little bit of a you know you're not just completely improvising on the spot or sticking to the original plan. You know that you have there's some way to negotiate it.
0: There's flexibility now, and fluidity, and you know there's so much is it's always a big issue. Certainly when you, we talk about disaster management, etc. This notion of time and how do we how are we flexible within a time basis and I think um, a lot of what's coming out with these conversations around the development of this methodology is how do, how do we how do we frame like a long-term focus within a constraints of time that we have and what are the things that we need to be thinking about in order to be ready and prepared uh, and um, open to flexibility within a very constrained process
1: yeah and and you can't answer those questions no, unless you, unless you know what you're f- facing you know unless you have an understanding of what it is that's happening and and because communities uh, a community is such an opaque uh organism um you know it it's actually quite difficult to to be, you know people that have lived in that community for 10 years might have a better idea but their their idea also will be you know, very much their own, very much embedded from within. I mean, part of the whole advantage of bringing an artist in from the outside is you're bringing, you know, an, an autonomous observer, somebody who 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 isn't entangled within all of the the, the politics and collective culture of that community. You know, say so, so they they actually have a bit of you know a bit of freedom to be able to observe things in a, in a way that that others wouldn't, or to be able to make suggestions that would have you know, if it, if it came from a community member would probably face a lot more, you know, uh, harsh criticism and resistance. Um, and, and that goes back to so Samantha, I think, was that was a good example uh, of exactly this. Like Samantha, you know, happened because we weren't from the town. You know, if I'd grown up in Candace, I don't think I could have pulled it off. There, mm-hmm. would, there would have been too many constraints on me too many responsibilities to the various people in the community. But because I was an artist who didn't know the rules, who didn't know, you know, the the, the lay of the land, we could operate in a, in a way that was somewhat autonomous to that we had, they were absolutely had to be incredibly careful and respectful about the, the boundaries that the people have and and that they operate within the town. But we could actually kind of do stuff that was quite free of it as well.
0: Well, it's sort of is it ten years on now, Alex, and you're cemented literally yourself into that community, so you're in a very different place now, and that's a much more embedded kind of relational engagement that you've got with your town that you call your own and now you're not a local yet, you haven't been there long enough, but so what's the difference, and what do you understand about that ongoing relational development that you're doing through living and being part of that community?
1: Yeah, so I feel a lot better accepted in the town. I have those understandings of, of, of the community having lived here in 10 years. I, I, it's has interesting it, after it changed, what I just said.
0: Yeah, Has it changed people's perspective about the work that you're doing or, or the festival? I mean, you, you, you exist beyond the festival, but it's one aspect of what you're working with through the Candos community. But have, yeah. has it changed um, their sort of relational engagement with the work?
1: Yeah, I, would, I mean, I would say absolutely it has, you know, I, well, okay, first of all, like moving into the town after the first festival, and the first festival was rough, but us doing that, like, I think we bought some respect, like, we weren't just blowing in and blowing out again. And that was very early. I mean, this is 10 years on. And it's been the last couple of years that I kind of get, you know, the feeling that I'm, I'm accepted, like, you know, the old old ladies in the town will call me dear now, you know, they <laughs> are love, you know, <laughs> um, I, I had a, a woman You're
0: adopted the- son.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I think it, those earlier days, it was definitely a lot more of the kind of this will be good economically. We don't know it. It's not us. We don't like it to uh, actually, you know, this is not so bad. This is kind of interesting. I, I had a, a woman uh, from the, the Vinnies, you know, as I'm walking down the street, she just comes running out and she says, oh, you know what we should do? We should have murals all over the town. And I was like, well, that's a great idea. And she then started talking to me for the next 10 minutes about the ideas and, and, w- and what she'd been thinking and where it'd be coming from. And, you know, 10 years of having art in your town, you're going to get used to it. You know, it's, it's going to not seem to be such – uh, an alien artifact it's the boundaries between your world and its world are going to be able to to melt a bit the art space that we have we have a, a cafe it's run by locals and it's basically locals uh, are, are the the main uh, um, customer base and it brings so we're getting a lot of locals who normally wouldn't have anything to do with art and the conversations we have are invigorating like they're really quite. Um, you know, very interesting what's what's coming out. Um, they're very much from, from, you know, from people's own perspectives. But the great thing is, is that, you know, all of that anxiety that people have about stepping into an art gallery and not knowing what it is, I'm sure it's still there. I won't say it's gone, but it's absolutely suppressed to the point where people feel free to, to come up to me and talk to me about an artwork and to say what they think of it. And coming up with some really interesting things because they're not coming at it from... The, the same place as, as everybody that's been trained in this uh, way of thinking uh, is coming at it.
0: Fantastic. Well, we, we're we working at the moment on this research framework. We're hoping that before the end of the year, we have something structural to share with everyone. It's been a real pleasure having our weekly conversations with you, Alex. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we look forward to uh, continuing to work and unpack this ever-changing practice really
1: yeah, yeah no and it's been great it's been awesome working with you and Jen and and this has been the whole thing has been a it's a it's amazing if I think about the last 10 years of my art career how how much richer it's been uh, you know like it was wonderful and fascinating in the city but um yeah there's just a level of I don't I want to say, you know, it feels much more embodied, it, it, like I'm, I'm more in contact with my subject material than I was when I was bumping around trying to get shows in the city. You know, like I, I'm sitting here thinking about the world rather than thinking just about art.
0: Uh, so much to engage with Alex, like if people want to follow your work or hear more about your projects, where might they find you or your information?
1: Yeah, so the best two sites would be um, cementa.com.au. We keep a blog, and I attempt to uh, update it as regularly as I can. There's also the Cementa Facebook page and Instagram, which is worth following. Uh, ksca.land is the Canada School of Cultural Adaptation webpage, and that has all of those projects on there. Um, Those are probably your two best ways of following what I'm doing.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us, Alex. Um, We look forward to following the journey.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Thanks for joining us for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation. And many thanks to Alex for making the time to speak with me. We'll include links to Cementer and KSCA in the show notes, along with direct links to the Solar Project in Little Hartley. We'll also post the Welcome to Candos poster by Ian Millis that Alex spoke about on our social media. If you'd like to take a look at that, you can find us at Creative Recovery Network on Instagram and Facebook. We'll be back next month with another conversation. And in the meantime, if you haven't already caught up with Creative Responders documentary series, you can scroll back to find those episodes at the beginning of Season 2. All our episodes are also available to stream directly from our website, creativerecovery.net.au. And that's also where you can find transcripts for each episode and other resources relating to the topics we explore. Creative Responders In Conversation is produced by me, Scotia Malkovich, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany DeMack, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. Special thanks to the team at Audiocraft, and thank you for listening.